G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How you doing today? Good to be chatting again on the podcast as always. Yeah, good to be with you, Rowan. Now, I'm looking forward to today's episode, which we've called not just genes. So we did labor a little bit to find a, a j word that uh, is going to help us out here today. But just give us a little bit of an overview. What are we going to be talking about today? Well, when we look at mental health conditions, often there's a big emphasis on genetics or our genes. And I certainly remember that when I started in a psychiatric hospital setting, working in that setting many years ago, you'd hear so much about how schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or depression how much they related to biology and biochemical imbalances and the influence of genetics on all of that. It was as though our genetics was the key driving factor of our mental health or mental illness. But over the years, we've come to understand a lot more about things that influence our mental health. And also in our mind-body interaction, it's not just our body through our biology and genes that influences our mind. But there are ways that we can use our mind or how we go about things and our behaviour can actually influence our genes and our gene functioning. So we're going to talk about some of that two-way influence today. And I think that's going to be something that's particularly relevant at the moment because I don't know about, well, probably not you, Dad, but I don't know about others out there. But I think with everything that's going on at the moment... I know me personally, I'm trying to be a little bit more deliberate about what the recipe is for positive mental health and having good mental health. And I think at the moment, spending a little bit of maybe extra thinking time, working out what your particular recipe for mental health is, is going to be something that's going to be really beneficial to us. Yes, absolutely. And that's where this topic partly came up. Like when we think about bringing it down to the absolute basics, what are the things that really influence our mental health? Because if we've got an idea of the basics, then at least we can focus on the main things that might make a difference. But fortunately, we don't just have to sit and cross our fingers that we've been born with better rather than worse genes to hope we get through stressful times. We can actually influence not just our mind and body functioning, we can influence the way that our genes operate that in turn can support healthy mind-body functioning. Well, I think today's topic is something that I'm going to find particularly interesting as, look, so I suppose you can attest to this a little bit, Dad, as someone growing up who, oh, look, I wasn't the best at going to bed on time. And so I suppose my first experience with learning about the topic that we're talking about today is the importance of sleep in terms of our gene expression. And so I suppose today, one thing that I'm going to be looking forward to is gaining a little bit more understanding, maybe than just beyond go to sleep, Rowan, you need to, you know, get to bed now so you can have a full night's sleep and be right to go tomorrow and all this sort of stuff. So it'll be good to get a bit more of a, hopefully a, a deeper understanding as to why you're on my back so much as a kid. Good. Well, hopefully that does come across because we know that routines can be good for you. And if we can adjust our routines or if we need to adjust our routines, if we find a way of doing that, that then comes into a good regular pattern. But when we talk later on about some of the aspects of our genes and different types of genes, yes, that will make more sense about how routines could be so worthwhile and important to us. And I think it's 
difficult at the moment to establish routines. It's potentially as difficult as it has been for a long time. But I know speaking to a few friends and things who, for example, are staying up a little bit later at night, finding it a little bit hard to get up in the morning when, for example, you don't have to get up as early to make it to work on time. So I think talking about some of this stuff today is going to come at a really good time to just reiterate the importance of some of this stuff. I know for me anyway. And certainly when we have more insight into why a certain kind of behaviour or activity or a way of going about things, whether it be with our diet or whether it be with our exercise, if we've got an understanding of how it actually works and how it does influence us, then hopefully it helps us be more motivated to keep those positive, healthy behaviours going. And it's one thing that we've touched a little bit on the podcast about before, but You'd be able to speak to this certainly more than I would, but we've conducted some research in the practice, haven't we, into clients who've used antidepressant medication and also clients who haven't used antidepressant medication and and used questionnaires to quantify their progress. And so what were some of the findings out of that? Because I think that's going to be related to today's topic as well, because to me that suggested that we potentially have a bit more agency over our genes than potentially some of the drug companies would like us to think. Yes, well, as far as that depression research goes, like what we looked at in our practice, there's long been the idea that people are more prone to depression according to their genetics. And it was often suggested as though there were a limited number of genes that would almost cause depression. And if that was a biological basis to depression, then you'd need some kind of biological treatment there for medication. But what we found in our practice is of the one-third of clients suffering from major depressive disorder, who did not have medication, they responded as well and as quickly as the two-thirds of clients with clinical depression who were on medication. Now, that doesn't fit neatly into a genetically determined explanation of depression. It shows that there's more that's going on. And that was perhaps one example of showing how a direct biological explanation, as in you've got a problematic gene, this will lead to a biochemical imbalance, that will lead to depression, and there's not so much you can do about that except take medication. That's another example suggesting that there's more to our functioning than just that biological basis. Well, in that case then, how much influence do our genes actually have on us? Because we hear with things like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder that quite often there is a genetic link there. But is this the same with, for example, anxiety and depression? Is it that there's still a genetic link, but it's not as prominent or is there not as much of a genetic link there at all? Okay, well, just say if we look first at things like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, there's a fair bit of evidence that people are more prone to developing, for example, schizophrenia if they have certain types of genes. And there have been a number of genes that have been identified with that, but mainly the way that these studies are done is showing that identical twins share, say, the experience of schizophrenia more than fraternal twins non-identical twins might show. So that shows that there's a certain genetic loading. But there again, there have been, say, triplets in the past who were identical triplets. One might have developed schizophrenia, one might have developed a bipolar disorder, and another triplet 
might not have developed any condition at all. So this shows that there's more to it than just whether people have certain genes. And the way we tend to think of it these days is it also depends on, for example, the environment or stress or experiences that might influence whether certain problematic genes are switched on or not. So there was a model developed called a stress diathesis model. A diathesis means like a disposition, like a biological disposition to develop a particular problem, say schizophrenia. But maybe you need a certain level of stress or a certain challenge in environmental experiences or things that happen in your life that then trigger those genes from then operating in a way that causes the problem in the first place. So it's not just about our genetic makeup. It's also about things that happen that might switch these genes on or switch them off. And a similar thing with anxiety and depression. We now know that there are thousands of genes involved in anxiety and depression, and they tend to be pretty much the same ones. There might be some discriminating differences between the different types of genes, but there's a lot of overlap. So there's the notion about whether particular problematic genes might be switched on or switched off. But there's also this notion that they express themselves in different ways or manifest in different ways or show up in different kind of ways or don't show up at all, depending on other kind of factors as well. So one of the main things is not to get sucked into this idea of, oh, I've been having a really difficult time, I've been dealing with depression or I've been diagnosed with a psychotic condition, that means I must have these terrible genes and there's nothing much I can do about it, I'm doomed. It's having an understanding that there are things that make a difference to whether these genes are switched on or switched off and other ways of compensating for those kind of difficulties, we can influence our biology more than previously accepted. Well, that is interesting because the implication there in terms of if environmental factors can influence whether, say, negative genes are switched on, that potentially means also that environmental factors can influence whether positive genes are switched on as well. And so that's where I suppose what we're talking about today is partly about a bit of a recipe for switching on some of those, say, positive genes. Exactly. And we've talked before about the benefit of physical exercise and also novelty. So we'll be coming back to this later on. So what gives us joy in life or what can help us be more physically healthy? And we now know that through our lives, we can create new brain cells and connections between them. That's called neurogenesis or neuroplasticity. We can rewire our brains. We can grow new brain cells. We can help our functioning that way. And that's partly, again, from the influence of our genes. And we're the certain genes are switched on or switched off. Well, it seems to me if we go back a little bit to what we were talking about last week, that the idea of a predisposition that we can't necessarily change a whole lot is potentially related to the medical model that we spoke about in terms of the explanatory style. So the medical model might suggest that it's only a medical or an external fix that can actually influence someone's genes or expression. Whereas maybe what we're trying to look at a little bit seems to be more in line with the rehabilitation model that we talked about, which it seems to me allows for a little bit more optimistic thinking in terms of giving us a little bit more personal agency over whether or not these genes are switched on in a way that's either positive or negative. Yes, so I think the basic thing we're talking about is the interaction between our mind and body. And it used to strike me as a little bit strange that if it was thought from a medical model that our biology is very important, then that means that our biology will strongly influence our mind 
which kind of makes sense that that could happen. But if it happens that way, then why not the other way as well? If it's a system and our biology and our body can influence our mind, then why can't our mind influence our body? And similarly, like in psychology, we'd often focus on people's mind or psychological functioning rather than the social system that they're in. But surely also a social system will influence our mind, but also how we think might influence the people around us. Like in other words, these systems are linked. Mind, body, our social world, our environment, all of these systems are linked. And if we can change something in one part of the system, our biology, our mind, our social connections, our experiences, then why couldn't it change all these other things? It seemed to only make sense that these systems would influence themselves in two-way, three-way, four-way interactions. One thing that I've found quite interesting recently that I've come across in terms of looking at, say, people like Bill Gates or Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, super duper into work types and, you know, quote unquote successful, if I suppose you were to look at kind of financial gain as kind of one parameter for success. But at the same time, one thing that's interested me about a lot of, I suppose, the literature about the way that these people conduct themselves is that although some of the outcomes that they're talking about are astronomical in terms of, you know, billion dollar deals, Elon Musk, for example, is literally trying to fly people into space. But so much of, I suppose, what's out there in terms of how he conducts himself is about almost like the micro habits that he puts in place or the tiny little habits throughout the day or the way that he conducts himself on almost like more of a micro level rather than looking at someone like that and going, you know, what's the attitude that he has that everyone else doesn't have? It's not necessarily about that, it seems to me. To me, it seems so much more about, I suppose, the infrastructure that they put in around their life that allows them to be able to achieve so much and fulfill so much. And it seems to me from what you've been describing a little bit there that whether it's deliberate or inadvertent, some of those habits that they're putting into practice are in order to get the most out of their biological predisposition. Yes, well, I suppose we could look at that in a certain way as thinking of ourselves as being partly or even in some ways largely programmed. But what are we programmed by? Are we programmed by our genetics that we're born with that we maybe can't influence in any particular way? Is it just the luck of the draw what we're born with? We're programmed that way whether we develop a mental illness or not or whether we function well or not or whether we're very intelligent or not or whether we have certain struggles or not? Or is it partly also that we can program ourselves to some extent by our habits, by our ways of going about things, by our ways of looking at things? And we do know that if we do something in a very consistent kind of way, it is going to lead to quite ingrained habits. So maybe part of the question is, how do we also look to influence those programs? How do we look to program ourselves to a degree? Because maybe... There's some things about how we go about programming ourselves or establishing certain kind of habits that will predictably lead to better well-being down the track. And so what role do genes actually play in our mental health now? If we look at it in terms of, if we can almost tip the balance the other way now in terms of we've spoken about almost underemphasizing the role of genes, but if we're able to distill down the role that they do play, what actually is that? Okay, well, I think of two different types of genes as influencing our well-being. And these are called state-dependent genes and activity-dependent genes. 
that influence us on an everyday basis. Now, what are our state-dependent genes? Apparently, our state-dependent genes relate to things like eating, sleeping, basic rhythms of life, the basic functioning of our bodies and minds through the day. So they're our state-dependent genes, and they love, if you like, helpful regularity or routine. Then you get our activity-dependent genes, and these are the genes to do with neuroplasticity or neurogenesis. So we know that right throughout life, you create new brain cells and connections between them with physical exercise and novelty or new learning. And that new learning can also include a bit of moderate stress. Just say if we face moderate stress in our lives or work or we have some challenges to deal with in how we manage a family situation with the changes in our lifestyle this year, for example, well, that actually can focus our creative efforts or our different flexible ways of thinking of dealing with things. That would also be our activity-dependent genes. And so I think that there's probably something in a balance in life in helping our state-dependent genes function better through having helpful routines, especially around things like eating and sleeping and regular routines in life, but also how do we engage our activity-dependent genes? How can we promote that joy and interest in life and engagement and making life worthwhile using physical exercise as part of a mainstay for our health, but then beyond that, how we generate those new brain connections with that new learning and that engagement in, in novelty. It's interesting as you're talking about that there because it seems to me that there's potentially a bit of a tension between those two in terms of if you look at state-dependent genes in terms of developing routines, activity-dependent genes in terms of orienting ourselves towards novelty. Well, it's potentially the case that the more we develop routines in life, the less novelty that we're potentially going to experience throughout that. So how would you describe the interplay there? Is there necessarily one that's, for example, more important than the other to prioritise in times of stress? I think this gives a real clue, that sort of tension between those two things, that it seems to relate to a main challenge in life and any living system that we would have alluded to before. It's the challenge between chaos and order. Like there's something very good about order, isn't there? Like if we've got our routines, we know where we stand and now we know it actually helps the functioning of our body and mind through these state-dependent genes. If we've got that regularity, those routines working for us and we are eating and sleeping better, then that's going to help our mental health functioning, including whether other problematic genes might be expressed or activated or not. So there's that benefit of order but just say if everything was order if everything's the same all the time like how would life be worth living that would be a real groundhog day so we need novelty which is kind of like chaos unpredictable don't know what will happen next mixing things up a little bit we find that in our everyday lives we need fun we need enjoyment we need something different you know something out of left field can interest us if the challenges that we face that we're not quite sure how we're going to deal with well there can be some kind of stimulation or new learning in that so yeah I, I think that might get back to that basic challenge in life about chaos and order and so it's interesting that that relates to different types of genes absolutely and I've actually never sort of heard it in terms of being explained like that but 
as you say, like we've spoken a little bit about it on the podcast before, but it seems to me that optimal functioning or that area of optimal functioning is when you can straddle the line of chaos and order in that way. And I wonder if in that way, it is a bit of an example there of what you were talking about earlier in terms of how the mind-body connection can almost work two ways with each other. In terms of when we're going too far in one way with either of those two concepts, which is quite a, a cognitive thing, it's almost a rational thing, it's probably a, a genetic makeup which is going to give us a little bit of a guide as to when that's not as optimal for us or when we're not necessarily straddling that line in a way that's improving our functioning as much as it normally would. Yes, I suppose that comes back to looking for balance in our lives, doesn't it, by being aware of our reactions to things. I think that gets back to other things that we've talked about too, like our stress signature, recognising when we're feeling stretched, recognising when we're feeling stressed. And I suppose that when we are feeling more stressed, then that encourages going back to a little bit more order, You know, falling back on maybe helpful routines or what we know is tried and true. Whereas if we're finding that we're, well, feeling bored or stressed because things are so samey or humdrum, well, then maybe we've got the challenge of how we can energise or enliven ourselves. How can we make life worth living? Can you have negative novelty in the sense that it seems to me that like if we look at novelty more broadly in terms of what draws us towards the expression of those activity-dependent genes – I think, for example, I'll put my hand up here. There's nights these days where you're looking at social media and it almost feels like a couple of hours have passed in 20 minutes sort of thing because, for example, you're tired from work and you're just sort of a bit zoned out and social media is something which is kind of packed with novelty in some ways, even though it's not necessarily the most kind of positive novelty, if that makes sense. So I wonder if particularly looking at the situation at the moment where people are spending a little bit more time inside – if we're a little bit less deliberate with the practices that we're putting in place, the routines that we're putting in place, is the potential there for some quote-unquote negative novelty to draw us away from those routines which are going to help us, even if it's not necessarily kind of novelty in the sense that we recognise it to be? It's interesting you mentioned that example because what came to my mind when you mentioned could there be negative novelty, I was thinking, well, maybe illicit drugs. For example, you know, what are people looking for? They're looking for a high, a, a different kind of experience, maybe to be taken out of oneself in a certain kind of way. Maybe it's sometimes also avoidance, trying to escape from certain challenging aspects of reality. So no doubt it would tend to be novel, especially early on when people are taking different types of drugs, but often it might lead people in a more chaotic or more impulsive direction or lead people to maybe react in less stable ways. And so with that knowledge in mind, in terms of the thing that's really stood out to me so far is relating the ideas of state-dependent and activity-dependent genes to order and chaos, but now that we know that, how can we best use it to our advantage? Okay, well, look, I suppose I first think of that in terms of what we're dealing with with lockdown again. Now, you've been in lockdown in Melbourne for a couple of weeks for a second time. In Geelong, we've just gone into lockdown for another six-week stint. And so just thinking about dealing with stresses in life, how we manage that, and then thinking about this idea of chaos and order, state-dependent genes, activity-dependent genes, the first thing I think of that really counts with adapting to change, like lockdown, 
And we would have talked about this earlier on in the early episodes of the podcast about getting some routine together. Maybe in the first instance, finding some order, finding some new adaptation, some way of managing things, some level of predictability, some level of, dare I say, security. I think there's a bit of security that comes in familiarity, having ways that kind of work. So I would have thought a first priority is probably getting that order in place. And there's a parallel that I've mentioned before for someone I know with chronic schizophrenia who manages his life very well by having lots of order. And some of the order is getting up at a certain time, engaging in contemplative prayer for this person, having regular exercise, looking to have meals at certain times. There are things that this person does in certain ways. Actually, and medication for schizophrenia for this person is a very helpful thing as well. It's about, first of all, establishing order. And I think that when we're in a potentially chaotic situation, that's a good priority to have first. But then we need to mix it up a bit. I think if the first priority in a chaotic situation is getting more order, then how do we have more interest coming into our lives? And that's where, say, thinking of the first time with lockdown, the way that people got into extra kinds of baking or trying to look up different kinds of entertainment. It might have been a different Netflix series or it might have been that people engaged in certain different types of exercise where they could catch up with others maybe in pairs doing something new or different as well. But it's establishing something different with our routines, but also something engaging, something that makes us interested. It might be new learning. Some people might have taken up a new instrument, which would have been a good time to do that. For other people, it would be reading, having more time for reading, which is going to have a level of novelty or new ways of looking at things built into it. So, yeah, I tend to think of... If we relate it to lockdown, first of all, maybe establishing the patterns that tend to work for us, but also look at what moves us, what interests us, what gets our attention and helps us engage in flow, you know, time passing where we're absorbed in what we're doing. Well, I think at the moment in particular, it is important to stress that idea of order because I think there is so much kind of inbuilt novelty into the way kind of society is at the moment. Like I remember having the conversation with friends a couple of times this week that at no point in my life, certainly there's almost been this kind of historical perspective to the present sort of thing and even sort of watching the news and even sort of seeing the oh absolutely horrible situation that's going on over there in in Lebanon and obviously our thoughts go out to everyone affected by that and even sort of seeing things like that on the news it's stuff that I never thought I would see and never thought that I would sort of come across in life and that's where I almost look at things in terms of there's so much potentially drawing us away from developing healthy routines at the moment. And it's potentially even more than just, you know, a little bit easier to sleep in in the morning because you don't necessarily have to commute to work as far. Well, actually, if you look at things like that idea of there's so much inbuilt novelty into just the way that everything's going at the moment, it's potentially a little bit harder to sort of straddle that line. And that's where I think being really deliberate about the routines that we do set up, thinking what are my routines that are more positive and and what are the things that are going to be taking away from finding a more healthier balance for myself? Because 
as I sort of said at the start, but from what you've said today, it's becoming a little bit more clear to me even that the more deliberate we can be about this sort of stuff and the more kind of reflective we can be about how we're feeling about certain things and recognise what side of either order or chaos we're sitting on at the moment and how that makes us feel, that with all the extra stresses and everything that's going on at the moment, there's almost going to be an added benefit to that over and above what it would have been otherwise. Yes, and as you describe that, it does make me think of how there is so much novelty and challenge to adapt at the moment that if we are getting by in any particular way that's somewhat manageable and kind of okay, well, we're doing pretty well because we're showing a lot of flexibility and adaptation for that to happen. So there's a degree of novelty built in, isn't there, in in managing any which way. And as you were describing that too, it reminded me of what we've talked about before with any system for balance. It comes back to what we call a FACES state. F-A-C-E-S. F is flexible, A is adaptive, C is coherent, E is energised, and S is stable. So when you think about it, when we talk about routines or order, then we're looking at things being coherent and stable. That sounds like the state-dependent genes. You know, the routine kind of thing helps us be stable and coherent. But then if we look at the other ones, like say adaptive and energised, then it seems to me that's more the activity dependent genes. Whereas if we look at flexible, maybe that's combining the two. If we're flexible, that's also maybe novelty as well, the flexible. But if we can look to manage our state dependent genes, have that stability, that coherence, but also if we look to build in novelty in a way that we're energized, flexible, adaptive, we're covering those different bases of a system that's functioning well, whether it's a human being, whether it's a family, whether it's any particular group functioning well, it'll have those elements to it. So it seems that a whole lot of life does come down to these basic processes. So it's interesting that at our very basic genetic makeup, there are genes that cover these two broad aspects of order and chaos. Well, it seems to me from what we've been talking about today and from what you've said there that it almost comes back to an idea that we've sort of spoken about a little bit on the podcast before and I think almost further develops again today, but it's that idea of having a positive project about something. And so instead of just kind of sitting still in one place and not necessarily being as deliberate about the way that we're living and and letting that kind of rule us a little bit, I think the more that we can look to find those little positive projects, even if it doesn't necessarily have to be kind of a a big thing like sort of, you know, the the cliche one at the moment is going for the sourdough. I'm not necessarily saying you, you have to get your sourdough kit out every weekend sort of thing. But at the same time, I think the more that we can build into our routines space for little creative tasks or little, I suppose, elements of novelty, that seems to me is going to really help us find that balance. Look, I think so. And say, building on that, I remember saying to you recently, if there's something I'd like to focus on is decluttering, and I've started a bit of that process, but I'm thinking of this next period of lockdown, there's a table tennis table in the garage, there's lots of space there, but there's a bit of clutter around that. By decluttering that kind of area, hopefully that's a good project to work on, but also there's that uh, initiative or encouragement to get back to playing table tennis, something that you and I used to do quite a number of years ago but haven't been doing much of for a long time partly because it's got a bit of clutter around it. 
Yeah, I don't know if you want to be doing that. That's a, that, that's a brave move to be uh, getting the table tennis table back out. Yeah? We'll have to see how that one goes. But thanks for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. It's been good because as we spoke about a little bit at the start, I think people recognise the importance of building a routine, but at the same time, it can seem almost so mundane at the moment without that idea of novelty to look towards a routine that's going to be the same day after day and and not necessarily stimulate us. I think the more that we can recognise the activity-dependent gene side of things, for lack of a better term, and put in some practices which are going to stimulate both types of our, our genes, then I think we're going to be a lot stronger for it. Yes, it's working out our own formula for those things and maybe a bit of experimenting is part of what helps us do that. And as always, we'll put all of the resources for today's episode up on the podcast page at chrismackey.com.au and also, Dad, that's 19 episodes now. So for 20 episodes next week, we're probably going to have a bit of a recap just over everything that we've spoken about in the podcast and I know even just through letting things sit after having a bit of a chat about them at the time that going back thinking about them even a couple of days down the line, it almost gives you a new angle of thinking about the podcast topic. So there's a few topics that I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, expanding on a little bit further next week. Yes, Rowan, and I look forward to that, and I'd have to say in what has been a very difficult year, then I'd have to say that doing this podcast with you has been about my favourite novelty for this year. Yeah, likewise. So look forward to, to many more, but yeah, 20, 20 next week. So yeah, well done, Dad. We got there. We'll do a high five then. <laughs> See you then. <laughs>